Yeah, in late November of uh, 2006, I got a call from this expert witness in this massive of lawsuits over Zyprexa causing people to uh, get diabetes and other metabolic problems that Eli Lilly had, you know, not owned up to. He called me and said he had these documents that show Lilly knew about it from the beginning and didn't, you know, and hid it and lied to the doctors and that uh, they were illegally marketing it to children and the elderly. Side effects of neuroleptics is what's called tardive dyskinesia, which is basically drug-induced Parkinson's. So they said that these newer drugs don't cause tardive dyskinesia. That was a lie. Another negative effect was this condition called neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is often fatal. You know, it kills people. And they said it doesn't do that. Well, both of those things are a lie. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Big pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly was hiding the truth about the harms caused by their antipsychotic medication called Zyprexa. That is until lawyer Jim Gottstein got a hold of the evidence and shared it with the New York Times. You will not be surprised to hear that Eli Lilly's lawyers went after Jim hard with criminal charges to destroy his career, his livelihood, and his freedom. In my interview with Jim about his personal experience with the mental health system, his legal career focused on mental health, I ask him why he's exposing Big Pharma deceit now in his new book, The Zyprexa Papers. Jim tells about his personal experience with psychosis when he was overworked and underslept. Waking suddenly one night and thinking he was being chased by the devil, Jim threw himself out a second story window to escape. Fortunately, Jim is also a skydiver and knew how to roll his landing without injury. But it was Jim's lived experience in the mental health system that prepared him for legal battles representing clients about mental health issues. Jim's lived experience with mental health system is priceless, adds value to a good legal defense, and cannot be taught in law school. Jim also tells the story of how he became the lawyer to expose Eli Lilly's lies about the safety of their Zyprexa medication and the impact that had on his life and career. Jim became a leader in the psychiatric survivor community, founding patient organizations including psychrights.org, and by providing his legal services pro bono to clients who didn't want to be forced to take medications. In the Zyprexa papers, Jim gives a riveting first-hand account of what really happened, including new details about how a small group of psychiatric survivors spread the Zyprexa papers on the internet untraceably. All of this within a gripping, plain language explanation of complex legal maneuvering and his battles on behalf of Bill Bigley, the psychiatric patient whose ordeal made possible the exposure of the Zyprexa papers. 
If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly podcast patron. If you need the support of an experienced counselor about medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Jim Gottstein, and as always, a word of caution that some folks may be triggered by Jim's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Jim. So I read a little bit about your history. I understand that you grew up in Anchorage. What was your childhood like in, in the North? Um, well, Anchorage, you know, I was born in 1953, so kind of grew up in the 50s and 60s and a uh, different time than now. It was a pretty, pretty nice place to grow up. You know, I, I was a normal, I, I would say boy, you know, I played Little League and uh, we got to, you know, walk around town and ride our bikes and do all that stuff. So. Anchorage, I think, had about, you know, when I was born, I think there was maybe 25,000 people, and now there's uh, 400,000 or so, or almost now. So there have been a lot of changes in Anchorage since since I grew up there. Wow, it went from a town to a city. Right. Yeah. So then after high school, you went to university in Oregon? Correct. The University of Oregon, you know, go Ducks, mean, mean Green. So in Oregon, what did you study? Well, I was on track to, well, I studied business and uh, with a degree in finance. And, and one of the required courses was uh, business law. And when I took business law, I didn't miss a question the whole term. And I go, hmm. Uh, maybe this is a good fit. And then I took the advanced business law uh, class and, well, I missed a question, but I realized that the law was a pretty good fit. So then I decided to go to law school. I uh, went through college in three years. I In high school, I didn't get that good of grades and I didn't get into, you know, any, you know, quote, good schools. And I didn't like my uh, options to be, you know, limited in that way. So in college, I decided I was going to really focus on getting good grades. And I, I mean, my first term, I took 18 hours, and that was uh, 15 hours as a normal load. And I didn't really do that well. I got a few Bs, and I, I think maybe a C in uh, calculus. And I decided my problem was I had too much time too much time on my hands so then the next term I took 21 hours and I got all A's and a B and I thought that was kind of the sweet spot because if you got all A's then you don't know if you put more effort than you really need it right um, so the next term I took 24 hours uh, and got all A's and a B but that was a little bit much so I uh, backed off to 21 hours for the rest of you know my career, and you know, I decided I didn't really think I needed to be there for four years, and I graduated in three years. Uh, but the last term, I needed 10 hours of anything to graduate, um, and I had you know all before that I mean I started at eight in the morning I read everything before class um, I never took notes because that distracted me um, but I needed 10 hours of anything to graduate so I took 10 hours of uh, teaching skydiving I'd always always wanted to learn how to skydive and I did and the guy that ran the class 
found out that I was a pilot. So I, he, he, I flew, I flew skydivers too. Wow. So that's an interesting way to go about learning how to skydive. But I, I must say, skydiving and flying a plane, those require two different amounts of education and practice. Like one, you just sort of step out of the planks. I did that. But flying a plane, when did you squeeze that in how to learn to fly planes? Well, my father was a pilot and in Alaska probably still does, but at the time had the highest percentage of private pilots and probably in the world, but certainly in the country. And I always wanted to fly, I always wanted to fly a float plane uh, with pontoons. I got my pilot's license when I was 17. Okay, so you're in law, law school. Where did you go to law school? Uh, Harvard. Oh, that's pretty prestigious law school, is it not? Well, yeah, I think I was the only pilot skydiver from Alaska who graduated in three years who applied that year. So I feel like I was pretty lucky to get in. Of course, I had, you know, good LSATs. And then what did you do with your law degree? So my mom got, uh, got me a job for Robert M. Goldberg, Bob Goldberg, who was the son of Justice Arthur Goldberg of the U United States Supreme Court. And he kind of had to move to Alaska to get out from under the shadow of his father, who we called the ultimate senior partner. And he represented the uh, Native organizations, primarily Atna Inc., the smallest of the Alaska Native regional corporations, which were formed under the Alaska Native Plan Settlement Act of 1971. Uh, so how long did you do that? And what caused you to sort of change direction? Basically, I, this was from 1978 till 1982. And then I started, I decided to go out and open my law, own law practice I, uh, and then run for the state Senate. Uh, after a, a trip to Israel and Europe, and I came back, I was late for uh, starting my run for the Senate and trying to set up my law office and jet lagged. And I got and I didn't get sleep for days and I had a psychotic break, i.e. going crazy, uh, culminating in, I, I went over to my dad's house and I was trying to sleep there. and. I think I fell asleep for just a, a second or so and woke up and thought the devil was coming down the hall. Uh, I was on the second floor and I looked out, looked out the window, you know, looked down and there was a lawn, but there was a sidewalk there. And I thought, if I can miss the sidewalk, I'll be okay because I know how to do a parachute landing fall. So this was about one in the morning in June. So it was light, of course. I was in my underwear and I jumped out of the, the window, made a perfect parachute landing fall, didn't hurt myself, and ran across into this parking lot, uh, school parking lot across the street. And I thought the devil was still after me, you know, was after me. So I kept looking around here and I, would be sp I was spinning around. And they, you know, they came in a paddy wagon, put me in a straight jacket and hauled me off to the Alaska Psychiatric Institute and pumped me full of something that put me to sleep. Wow. That must have been a frightening experience. Yeah, I mean, the, I would say the, the main thing about it was, you know, I was, you know, let's say pretty successful or as Jane Austen would say accomplished maybe and so I was used to you know being able to do things and basically whatever I set my mind to I could kind of do and I could rely on my mind to be accurately uh, convey what was going on and so it was a shock to me this idea that my mind could just become completely unreliable um, so I think that was, that was the main thing. So I, I woke up, I remember waking up in the hospital. I was, you know, in a bed and there was this male nurse and he had a, a clipboard and he, you know, I opened my eyes and he asked me, what day is it? And I said, 
how long have I been asleep? So he wrote down, does, you know, doesn't know what it is, you know, not oriented to time, right? And so that was kind of the uh, Alice in Wonderland, you know, start of the Alice in Wonderland experience that uh, being in a psychiatric hospital is. And then how long were you in there for? 30 days. And what was that experience like? You know, well, I was given Melaril. I told them I didn't want Thorazine. And they said, oh, Melaril is not anything like Thorazine. And, and what are and it, each of those? Well, uh, Thorazine was the first of the neuroleptics, these drugs that were used on uh, people diagnosed with schizophrenia, which basically clamps down on, it's, they block, uh, I think, 80 to 70 to 90% of the dopamine in the frontal lobe, the basal ganglia, and the limbic system. So they're basically chemical lobotomies. You know, I was anxious to get out, and but I didn't. I knew I didn't want to have a an involuntary commitment against me, so I quote signed in voluntarily, but it was hardly voluntary. And I, you know, I was fiance at the time, but she said I was still campaigning in there. I was, you know, handing out baseball caps and things like that. But so I was pretty pretty out of it, and but calmed down over the thirty days, and they let me out. And the medication, did it? Did you continue taking that after you read? Oh, no. And I didn't really, um, you know, for me, it didn't really seem to do that much one way or the other. I, I'm not sure other people felt the same way. The big thing was, uh, you know, it made me constipated, I would say. And then my dad, who had a lot of resources, got me hooked up with this very nice psychiatrist in New Rochelle, New York. Um, he was a nice guy. He diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. I came out of the hospital with what they call atypical psychosis, but he diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. And he, I didn't find him very useful, but my mother hooked me up with this psychiatrist, Robert Alberts, who had been a Japanese prisoner of war. Uh, and he was just a marvelous guy. And he said, I just, uh, that anybody who will go without sleep for long enough will become psychotic. And I just needed to learn how to uh, deal with that and uh, keep from getting in, into trouble. And I credit him with saving me from uh, being made permanently mentally ill by the mental health system because I had been told that I would never practice, never practice law again. And, uh, you know, so one of the, the Alice in Wonderland type experiences, um, when I told people that I'd gone to Harvard Law School, that confirmed that I was delusional. Of course it did. So when you were told that you could never be a lawyer, how did that impact you? Well, I didn't accept it. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, they call it denial. I think denial that, that one is, quote, mentally ill is one of the most positive things that you can do because the message of the mental health system basically is abandon all hope ye who enter here. And that's just the worst thing. And so I resisted that. I didn't accept it. So I'll tell you another little story. So... They wanted to put me on lithium I, in the hospital. Um, and I told them, you know, I'm a pilot. And if I'm on lithium, they won't let me fly. They didn't care a bit about that. But they had me do what's called a creatinine clearance to test your kidney um, function because lithium is toxic on the kidney. And I've known, you know, a number of people have been killed by lithium. They decided to do a kidney biopsy. And I went there. The, the nephrologist, the kidney doctor, couldn't find my kidney. He was poking this needle in my back, and, and you know, and he couldn't find my kidney. So they never got the kidney biopsy, and they never put me on uh, lithium. So my basic theme is that I was, I've been very lucky in so many ways. Yeah, an incompetent doctor couldn't find your kidney, and that <laughs> saved you. It sounds like you learned that you needed to rein in your 
a work-life balance and that that's what would keep you uh, from having later psychosis? What I found is that it's pretty much my problems with sleep almost always are related to uh, work pressures and deadlines. And so as a lawyer, you know, you've got briefs to file and um, motions, all that kind of stuff. And you have deadlines. And you can always make it better. You know, you can always go over again and make it better and, and then file it at the last minute. But what I, my main thing is that I go, you know what, I'm just going to try and get it. I'm going to get it good enough, which I like to think is pretty good, and then file it. And I try and file the day before so that I'm not, you know, so I don't have that, that sleep problem. But if I do get into a, you know, a sleep problem situation where I'm in trouble, and it's not that hard, it's not rocket science. If I'm not sleeping, I'm going to get in trouble. And then I know the signs. So, for example, the first thing that happens is I'll get kind of witty and sharp with quick rejoinders. And nobody notices, but me, I, I can tell. And then I'll start to have what's called thought blocking, which is where you, it's not exactly not finding words, but where you just kind of don't, just stop, don't for a few seconds when you're talking. And so that's kind of the next stage. And then the next stage is I think people are looking at me funny. So that's not a good sign. And so what I do about that is I, first off, I tell myself, I'm probably not acting funny and they're not looking at me weird. But if I am and they are, it's probably because I'm doing something weird. And so then what I do is I actually kind of think, kind of observe myself from, I think of it as from up above to make sure that I'm not doing anything weird. And that's pretty successful. And, and if it gets to that, at that point, um, I will take a benzodiazepine, a benzo, the one I like is uh, Halcyon, just to uh, get, uh, break that cycle and get a night's, night's sleep. Um, and it usually only takes one time and I can go a year or more since I've done, I think it's been a year since I, I've taken it. But uh, benzos are highly addictive. And uh, so it's important not to do it very much. And, uh, and I can tell even one dose the next night, it'll be hard, you know, harder to get to sleep. But that's a, you know, pretty good trade off for avoiding uh, going crazy. Well, so you're, you're managing it well, you're aware of the signs and you're able to talk yourself into uh, taking the appropriate steps so you don't get worse, and actually get rest. Right. And um, so one of the other ways that I was lucky is um, when I went in the hospital, I basically lost my pilot's medical license and Dr. Alberts helped me get it back. But one of the things, but what the FAA said was that I couldn't fly for two days after taking a bent, you know, the pill. And so that and flying was really important to me at the time. And so that was a really big incentive to minimize uh, my taking, you know, the benzos. Uh, and I didn't know how addictive they were at that time. So another example of my being very lucky. So that's what happened in your personal life around psychiatric care in the mental health system. Later on, you got involved in it from the legal side. Tell me about that story. So actually, I got involved on the legal side pretty much simultaneously. So uh, in 1956, Congress enacted the Alaska Mental Health Enabling Act, which granted the territory of Alaska a million acres of land to be used first for the necessary expenses of the mental health program of Alaska. So the state passed a law that says we hereby redesignate mental health lands as general uh, state of Alaska grant lands. And we'll pay 
some undetermined, you know, undetermined amount, you know, maybe. And, you know, my mother was the, the head of the Alaska Mental Health Association at the time. And they said, you can't do that. I went down the ledges. You can't do that. And they said, that, that's not legal. Uh, and they said, well, we don't care if it's legal. Sue us. So we did. And I was actually working on that complaint uh, to sue them when I had my uh, little psychiatric adventure. And so that took me out of that case for a while, but I came back into it in 1985 and worked on it until really 1987. And there ended up being a settlement was valued at a little over a billion dollars. And I wasn't the only lawyer involved. Um, and it set up this Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority, which had the right to spend the income without the legislature saying what to do about it. I founded a couple of mental health, you know, quote, consumers. I don't, I kind of hate that, that word, but uh, organizations of mental health users, let's, you know, service users. Uh, and then I was on the Alaska Mental Health Board for a number of years, which was a statewide planning agency for, you know, for the mental health system. And then in 2002, I read uh, Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill by Robert Whitaker. It's really a great read. But in addition to that, to me, it was a litigation roadmap for challenging forced psychiatric drugging based not just solely on, you know, the civil rights aspect of it, but that it's not in people's best interest. And so I founded the Law Project for Psychiatric, right, Psychiatric Rights, Psych Rights, on the web at psychrights.org, whose mission is to mount a strategic litigation campaign against forced psychiatric drugging and electroshock around the country. That's the, the mission. Um, and also to educate the public about, you know, how these drugs are not uh, really useful and how harmful they are and how people shouldn't be uh, forced to take them against their will and electroshock too. I just recently interviewed Sarah Price Hancock. She uh, was informing me and people that were listening that ECT is not standardized nor regulated. Don't call it ECT. I never call it ECT. Uh, you know, it stands for electric electroconvulsive therapy, because I don't think it's therapy. I always call it electroshock uh, or shock. But I'm sorry for getting distracted. That It's not standard, you say? or Yeah, Sarah says it's not standardized nor regulated. Well, the shock machines were invented, I think, basically in the 40s and 50s, and they've, you know, been um, modified since then. But they were invented before the device, devices were regulated. Uh, the, the Food and Drug Administration was authorized to regulate, regulate devices. And so they were kind of uh, grandfathered in and co Congress said, well, you should go back and look at these and if there's a chance for them being dangerous or, you know, you know can be harmful, then, you, you know, you should you know, regulate them. And so they didn't do that for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And then finally, just really, I think in the last year, they basically said, oh, they're not, they're not harmful and we're really not going to regulate them. And it's, it's outrageous, outrageous. I mean, I mean, it's just, just goes to show you how people in psychiatry just don't think. Because, you know, they're running electricity through a person's brain to cause a grand mal seizure, which neurologists do everything they can to prevent people from having grand mal seizures. And in the original way that it was configured, it also caused people's, you know, muscles to contract. They'd have such convulsions, you know, that people would break bones and they'd bite through their tongue and things like that. So they'd strap, you know, something in their mouth so they wouldn't bite, you know, bite through their tongue. And now they anesthetize people so that, you know, they don't have those convulsions, which, which just, and they say, oh, now it's better. But actually, 
you have to put more electricity through the brain uh, to cause the convulsion. So it's really in that way worse. And Dr. Peter Bregan, who's really, uh, he's written a number of great books about, you know, psychiatry. He, he points out that really what uh, electroshock is, is a closed head injury. And that uh, the benefit, a lot of people when they have a, a head injury become euphoric for a while. And so really it's the, the, the closed head injury that's considered the therapeutic you know, benefit. And people have uh, horrendous memory loss that they don't get back. I don't think, you know, I'm pretty negative about the drugs, but I think, I know people who find them helpful and if they wanna take them, they should be allowed to take them. I think they should be told the truth about them, but even if they're not, if they wanna take them, they can take them, not, not children. But electroshock should be banned. It's just barbaric. Yeah, it really sounds barbaric. And the little that I've learned, uh, it's, the risk is just so high. And like you say, Sarah, she lost all of her biographical memory. So there was a recent article about this woman in Connecticut who's been shocked against her will. A court has authorized them to shock her against her will 500 times. Unbelievable. So clearly it's working, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another thing about psychiatry. If something doesn't work, do more of it. Yeah, yeah. If that drug's not working, we'll throw in another drug. Or increase the dose, or both. Yeah, yeah. So in 2006, I think, uh, the New York Times started to publish some articles. So, yeah, in late November of uh, 2006, I got a call from this expert witness in this massive set of lawsuits over Zyprexa causing people to uh, get diabetes and other metabolic problems that Eli Lilly had, you know, not owned up to. He called me and said, he had these documents that show Lily knew about it from the beginning and didn't, you know, and hid it and lied to the doctors and that uh, they were illegally marketing it to children and the elderly. And he was subject to a secrecy order, but if he was subpoenaed in another case that he could, he had to give Lily a reasonable opportunity to object before sending, you know, giving the documents wanted to know if I would uh, do that, which you know, there's more to the story. And that's what the book, the Zyprexa Papers, is all about. It's really quite a, quite a story, I think. So anyway, he did that. And he had been working with this reporter from the New York Times, Alex Berenson. And so I got the documents. Uh, he did, you know, Lily didn't object for you know almost a week. He got, gave me the documents. And there was this kind of a story about that in the book about how they basically let us know they were about to do something and so we so Eagleman knew to get him to me and then I got him out to the New York Times and he ran uh there's a series of front page stories and and then Eli Lilly really came after me threatening uh, me with you know criminal contempt charges and and going to the Alaska Bar Association to have my uh, for me to be disbarred and that kind of stuff. So it it set in motion, you know, uh, this huge legal battle, and which I, you know, I think is kind of interesting. And it's, and the whole thing, I think, is kind of instructive, which is why I wrote the book. And Zyprexa, it vaguely sounds familiar as a medication, but I don't recall what its purpose was for. Well, it's so it's called a second gen. Uh, it's kind of a second generation neuroleptic. Now they call them antipsychotics, but I don't call them antipsychotics because that's really just a marketing term. And neuroleptic means seize the brain, which is what they do. Then in the '90s, they started with what they call these atypical uh, neuroleptics, which supposedly didn't have the side effects. So one of the side effects of 
when I shouldn't say side effects, negative effects of neuroleptics is what's called tardive dyskinesia, which is basically drug-induced Parkinson's disease. And it's, it's because they, it blocks 70 to 90% of the dopamine transmission in the basal ganglia, which that's when someone gets a Parkinson's disease, it's when they have that. And you have movement problems, and so, you know, and people with move their tongue involuntarily and smack their lips and, you know, look pretty weird. And people think that really is a sign of, quote, mental illness, but really it's a negative effect of the drug. So they said that these newer drugs don't cause tardive dyskinesia. That was a lie. Another negative effect was this minor condition called neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is often fatal you know, it kills people. And they said it doesn't do that. Well, both of those things are a lie. And they, they basically, uh, the newer ones, including Zyprexa, have the same, those same negative effects, and actually more, like they, the metabolic problems are, are much bigger, you know, bigger, with, especially with Zyprexa. Uh, Risperdal causes little boys to grow breasts and lactate, called gynecomastia. Um, Seroquel causes a uh, number of problems. Uh, elongate, I forget what they call it, but basically the heart rhythm, uh, and people can die from that, especially veterans are given Seroquel and I forget one other drug, and they're dying in their sleep. A lot of them die in their sleep just from this drug cocktail. So I guess I've gotten a little bit, you know, off topic, but they were approved initially for. Uh, schizophrenia and the uh, manic phase of bipolar disorder. But in the United States, a doctor can prescribe a drug for anything, um, not just the approved uses. The drug companies are not allowed to market it for unapproved uses, but they do it anyway with through various, you know, guises and artifices. Uh, including ghostwriting articles. I mean, it's basically just this uh, huge fraud that's uh, perpetrated on the public. Wow, so Eli Lilly was hiding all of the data that showed that some of the patients taking Zyprexa were being injured by it. And you got a hold of them from, from this guy. Was he a patient or who was he? He was an expert witness, Dr. David Eagleman. So he was an expert witness hired by plaintiff's attorneys. Uh, and he got, you know, he had these documents and he thought that the public should, you know, be informed about it. And he was subject to the secrecy order. And so they went looking for someone who might subpoena him and then give him to the New York Times. And I had just won a case for uh, Faith Myers where she had been, they wanted to force her to take Zyprexa. And I had this really terrific uh, expert, Dr. Grace Jackson. She analyzed the, the, the studies upon which the Zyprexa was uh, granted approval by the FDA. Uh, and wrote this report, I forget exactly what it is, but something like olanzapine, dubious, dangerous drug, dubious uh, efficacy. I, I would post all this stuff on the PsychRights website. She had found that, you know, she had found that it caused diabetes just from that. Uh, and not just diabetes. I mean, people would gain 100 pounds in a year on it. And, and a pretty large percentage gained a lot of weight. Uh, and, you know, and she found all these, you know, basically, uh, I'm supposed to say misleading, but basically fraudulent studies where, so, so for example, the placebo arm was people who had been abruptly withdrawn from Haldol. Well, while it's never been proven that people diagnosed with schizophrenia have any kind of brain abnormality before the drugs, the drugs block, like, like I said, 70 to 90% of the dopamine, dopamine in, the, in the frontal lobes. 
And what the brain does to compensate for that, first it pumps out more dopamine to try and compensate. And then after a few weeks, it grows more dopamine receptors to try and compensate. So then when you abruptly withdraw, that you know causes a lot of people to become uh, psychotic or crazy. And then they say, oh, see, you need your medication because your you know, mental illness is, you know, coming through. Well, it's not, it's a withdrawal effect. So anyway, these people that they induce psychosis in uh, by withdrawing from uh, Haldol, that was their control group. And not only, so that that's misleading. And so then not only that, while it causes, you know, a lot of people to become psychotic when they're abruptly withdrawn like that, uh, some people actually do quite well when you know when when they're taken off Haldol and those people were thrown out of the study so that's another way to mislead it okay and then the the negative effects are so bad i mean people just feel terrible i mean it's like um you know it's the chemical lobotomy and people don't like it and so mass you know huge numbers like two-thirds of the people in these studies dropped out because they weren't being forced to take it and so then what the, the Lily did was say, okay, well, we'll just assume this was a 12, these were generally 12 week studies. We'll just assume that at the end of 12 weeks, this person who dropped out would be the same as they were when they dropped out. And, that, and they called that last observation carried forward. So what's, what's the point in doing a 12 week study if you're, you're gonna pretend uh, you know, the result at the end. So uh, Dr. Jackson, you know, put all this in this report and it, it turns out that Alex Berenson was the one who found this report and suggested to uh, Dr. Eagle and that he give me a call to see if I might subpoena them. Okay, so what happened with the court case? The first newspaper article, I think it was December 18th, 2006. You know, I sent them to the New York Times. I set up what's called an FTP file transfer protocol, which is a way to, you know, transfer large and uh, multiple files over the internet reliably. Uh, the New York Times got on that. And then I made CDs and sent them out to various people. One of the people I asked if they would get it out on the internet, if they knew how to get it out on the internet in a way that it couldn't be gotten back. Um, and he did, and so that happened. When you got the person to distribute it on the internet sort of anonymously, that sounds like it's predating. WikiLeaks? Yes, thank you. Yeah, it was a kind of a precursor to WikiLeaks. It was called Tor uh, and BitTorrent. So yeah, this was in 2006. And so uh, I think it was one of the, the first prominent uses of that. So then the New York Times stories come out and then these psychiatric survivors kind of uh, jump into action. And psychiatric survivors are people like myself who, you know, basically feel like they've survived the, you know, the harm caused by uh, psychiatry and are activists, basically. And there's one group called uh, Mind Freedom International, mindfreedom.org, David Oakes, that was the head of it at the time. And, you know, they help get it out, and or at least publicize it. And I mean, I don't want to tell the whole book. I want people to to buy it. But there were there was lots of really interesting things. Like Eli Lilly got, you know, it was kind of amazing the way they could whistle up these federal judges to issue orders against me without me even be, even being given notice. Uh, and so there was a psychiatric psychiatric survivor by the name of Eric Whelan. And you know, these were on the internet and he posted them on his, his website. And Eli Lilly said, you're, you know, you've been ordered by this federal, federal court to take them down. And he hadn't done it in an hour. And they said, you're violating the federal court order. And if you don't do it, we're gonna, you know, have you punished. And, you know, then again, a few minutes later. And so Eric Whelan, you know, he, he, he took them down. But there was this other guy by the name of Pat Risser, who tragically passed away a few years ago, um, probably a result of psych drugging. And he writes, he emails Eli Lilly and he says, oh gee, 
I read about these in the New York Times and I downloaded these from the internet, like thousands of other people. And I made a few, you know, CDs out of them, maybe 45. And I, you know, sent them to newspaper people I knew and family and friends. And I went to uh, this shopping center and I asked people if they were interested in them and I handed them out. And I didn't know that, you know, this was, you know, uh, illegal. It was in the New York Times. It was available on the internet. And I'm just so sorry. I'm not going to be able to get them all back. So um, that's, you know, one of my favorite uh, little vignettes of, of what happened. Then in the court case, um, anyway, it was, you know, I mean, giant Eli Lilly with an unlimited amount of, you know, money basically against me. Uh, and we had this hearing basically exactly a month later. So there was a very compressed time frame where I went to Brooklyn and testified. And uh, anyway, I don't want to tell the whole book. You know, there were some dramatic moments there. And I, you know, I write about how I didn't, didn't really want to identify the person who got him out on the internet uh, because he didn't want to be identified. And he subsequently has agreed to because I, I thought he should be given credit for it. And then the judge ruled that I had conspired to steal these documents. Basically, he said I'd, in a number of places that I committed a criminal act and would set me up for criminal contempt charges. Okay, so that sounds pretty scary. Right. So, so one of the big things was that the, the person for whom I subpoenaed the the Zyprexa papers, which, you know, they came to be known as, he had a guardian. And when I first met with him on December 6th, you know, I asked for uh, him to be given a form to, to release his uh, medical record, you know, his hospital chart to me. And they said, no, he can't do that. Only his guardian can. And so, and he had been hospitalized over 60 times uh, by that time. I asked him if he'd been given Zyprexa, and I was pretty sure he had, but he really had other things on his mind that he wanted to talk about. And so I wasn't sure. And at the hearing, the trial in Brooklyn, they made a big deal about, well, you didn't really know, you didn't know that he'd been given uh, Zyprexa. So that was, you know, so that was just really a pretense. And it was, you know, there was no legitimate basis for your subpoena. And I thought I had testified that I was pretty sure he'd been given uh, Zyprexa. And I went over and over that transcript and it's just not there. And one of the things is that I had been, I had flown, well, I'd been in, in Hawaii for vacation. I had to come back early to Anchorage to gather up my stuff and fly all night to New York, you know, have this hearing the next day. So I was actually pretty sleep deprived when I was testifying. So that was one of the factors. Shortly after after that, I, I did manage to get his records. And he had been drugged against his will with Zyprexa within a week of my subpoenaing him. And he was drugged against his will. In fact, he was held down and shot, you know, given an injection uh, within a month after that. And so, you know, we told Lily that. And it they realized that, you know, a contempt charge would, you know, look a lot different uh, with those facts. So, and they mainly, I think, wanted to, you know, hold this over my head to try and suppress me, which, you know, was moderately successful. And, um, and I didn't really think they would do it because they had been portrayed as this victim, you know, Eli Lilly being this victim over Zyprexa, which is just absurd. I thought, you know, that if they went after me for contempt, A, it would be an opportunity for more publicity, and it would be bad, you know, bad publicity for them. So I didn't, I didn't really think they'd do it. Um, but they, you know, could have crushed me financially. So yeah, it was scary. Even though I didn't think there was much likelihood you know, the consequences would be really severe, including, you know, being put in jail. Yeah, yeah, that's a big risk. 
Is Zeprexa still available on the market? Oh yeah, although it's on, it's uh, generic now, it's off patent. Um, and it's still forced, you know, people are forced to take it all the time. So your book, the Zeprexa Papers, uh, right. just came out recently? Yes. Uh, how come now, why not before? Well, I want, A, I wanted to give a little time, for, you know, because I didn't want to provoke, you know, Lily, <laughs> for one thing. Um, and then, you know, I was busy and stuff, and uh, about three years ago, I was in pretty bad financial straits, so I won't go into why, but, um, and I decided I, I had to give up most of the psych rights work, which I'd been doing, you know, pro bono as a volunteer for 14 years and try and crank up my private law practice to make some money, which proved to be, you know, much harder than I thought. And, and after a year of that, you know, I had some, you know, some clients, but not that much. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write this book when I, when I don't have something else to do, you know? So I started writing the book. And how has it been received so far? I think uh, very positively. I mean, one of the things is, you know, within the psychiatric survivor movement and, you know, generally the people that are critical of what psychiatry does, um, I think it's, you know, uh, that's most of the people who have gotten it. But I really would like to try and get it out into the mainstream because I think people would be shocked about what goes on. I mean, the two of the chapters, chapters 10 and 11, are about my representation of Bill Bigley and trying to keep him from being drugged against his will. And I represented him over the course of, I think, three or four years in 10, 10 trials and five trips to the Alaska Supreme Court, one of which was uh, resulted in a really important precedent. Um, and I go into some length about, you know, these, these trials and what I tried to do to prevent him from being drugged. And I think, well, it's interesting. I, I, when I was writing the book and I wrote those, that, those chapters, and I thought, you know, it's really not exactly about the you know, the Zyprexa papers, this part of it. Maybe it shouldn't be in the book. And one of the things people tell me, you know, it's not going to be a popular success. So that was kind of liberating in a way. And I got to write the book that I, you know, so I wrote the book that I wanted. But people really, really seem impacted by those two chapters about my representation of Bill Bibley. Um, you know, basically how uh, rigged the system is against people. I mean, it's basically a kangaroo court. So one of the things about Bill was he he was like he was like two months older than I was, and first came to the hospital uh, two years before I was when he his wife divorced him and took you know his two kids and saddled him with child support he, he couldn't couldn't handle and he had a good job as a heavy equipment operator and a lumber mill and he had you know a nervous breakdown so from my perspective there but for the grace of god go i and so part of it is this you know trying to convey that people's lives are really ruined by what psychiatry does to them so what ultimately happened with bill well what was it in 2007 the Grace Jackson testified in a hearing that if they were allowed to continue to drug him, he'd be dead within five years. And she was off by six months. Uh, so they continued to drug him and he was... Yeah, dead. I won some cases and lost some cases, but, and I'm really telling the whole bunch. <laughs> I hope people buy it anyway. So ultimate, so the Guardian didn't like me representing him because I... You know, I won about half the cases, and they wanted them drugged. 
they said that Bill didn't want me to represent him anymore. And I said, well, he hasn't told me that. And the, ju the judge says, well, they say he doesn't want you to represent him. And I say, well, he hasn't told me that. He's there. Why don't you ask him? If he says he doesn't want me, I'll, I'll quit representing him. And, and Bill says, yeah, Gottstein knows a lot about me. I'm the president. And so then the Guardian changed their tune and said, well, even if he wants Godstein to represent him, uh, he's incompetent, uh, shouldn't be allowed to choose Godstein. And so I won about half the cases for him, and the public defenders who would otherwise represent him basically lost all of, the, all of his case. Well, actually, they won one. So what's incompetent about that? The Supreme Court basically ended up saying, Bill wasn't allowed to choose me as his lawyer, which is really a, a very frightening thing. So then they got to drug him at, you know, without constraint, and he died within a couple of years. Wow. And so it sounds like Bill's guardian was the one who wanted to keep him medicated. Right. And I, you know, in one of these hearings, I said, you know, these drugs shorten lives. And he says, well, um, yeah, maybe that's true, but what matters is, you know, the quality of his life, even if, if it might be, the quantity might be shorter. But they didn't care, you know, how Bill felt about the quality of his life, and the quality of his life was better without the drugs. No, he, he, he was too crazy to even know how he felt, which is, you know, ridiculous. People, no matter how crazy people are, they know how they feel. Um, and then the judge basically said, well, he can, you know, he would assume that it would shorten his life, but he was, he was going to order it anyway because Bill's, you know, not doing well now and it's getting worse. That was the last big case that I had. It was a different one where I, I wasn't allowed to represent him. But so after, after that, basically, they, they were just basically able to drug him at will. That is just so incredibly frightening to be uh, so trapped without any power, any rights, basically. Right. And so that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to try and bring this to people's attention. And that's why I really am hopeful that uh, it gets some traction and you know in the general population so where can people find your book so it's on amazon.com you can get the kindle version there and the paperback version and the paperback version is also available at barnes and noble and i think you can get your bookstore to order it so it, it's basically available you're not going to see stacks of it in, in bookstores yet. Right. Okay. And if folks wanted to get in contact with you, are you still associated with PsychRights? Yeah. So psychrights.org, P-S-Y-C-H-R-I-G-H-T-S dot org, O-R-G. And down at the bottom, there's a link that says, you know, email us and that'll come right to me. Well, thanks, Jim, for sharing your own personal story, sharing your, your legal accounts of what's been going on, and for the advocacy work you've done. Uh, it's been kind of frightening to talk to you about what, you, what you've gone through, what you've experienced. Well, I'm trying, well, thank you. I'm pleased to do it. And, and that's really my purpose is, is to try and get you know, get people to understand what's going on. I get, you know, emails and calls all the time from people who, who this happened to, and they had no idea this sort of stuff was going on. You can learn from your mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. So this is kind of like that is, you know, hopefully we can prevent people from, you know, having this sort of terrible thing happen to them. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hopefully that that will happen. And uh, sharing your story, I'm sure will go a long way to making that happen. 
Well, a huge thank you to Jim for not only sharing his own personal experience, but for all of the legal work that he's done on behalf of patients in, in the mental health community. So the Zeprexa papers include hundreds of internal Eli Lilly documents and emails that showed how company officials knew their best-selling drug was severely harming people while scarcely helping anyone. Release of the papers exposed the abuses of the drug industry besides the harm that Zeprexa was doing. The series of front page stories on the New York Times could have saved tens of thousands of lives according to Jim's estimate. The public benefits greatly from Jim's efforts, not only because of the life-saving information he released, but also because he's a courageous model for other people to follow in exposing the predatory practices in the pharmaceutical industry. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly podcast patron. If you need the support of an experienced counselor about medical error or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.